Hello everyone, welcome to Drafting Archetypes with me, Sam Black. This week we're going to be talking about blue-black rogues. And uh, before we get started, I'm just going to give a quick uh, shout out and thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. So thank you, uh, Stephen, Byron, Michael, Arthur, Adrian. Matthew, Arn, Ray, Jack, Jonathan, Parker, Alex, Eric, Kevin, and Max. Very much appreciate your support. And uh, without further ado, let's get into blue-black uh, rogues, I suppose. Um, and uh, this week we're going to start by talking about how you get into blue-black rogues, which is a question, which is, I think, an interesting question in that I think that there are more or less exactly two cards in the set where I first pick them and I'm like, okay, I want to draft blue-black rogues. And those are, of course, Zareth San and Soaring Thought Thief. Uh, that those are the two blue-black gold cards that are rogues that specifically ask you to have other rogues. So the five mana legend with flash and uh, you can spend four mana to do like a rogue ninja thing and get a thing from a graveyard and the uh, two mana one three flyer that mills your opponent when you attack with rogue and pumps rogues for those of you who haven't played any constructed or drafted this set very much. Uh, I assume that uh, people are largely familiar with these cards. Um, they're both extremely, extremely strong and very good reasons to draft rogues. Other than that, uh, like those two cards would put me firmly into trying to draft rogues. All of the other good blue and black cards, there are, there are a lot of good blue and black cards where it's like, okay, this would work well in a rogues deck. Maybe this would work best in a rogues deck. But it doesn't work so exclusively well or so much better in a rogues deck that I'm like blinders on rogues is what I'm about now. The closest things that make me want to go that way are like the other mill cards. So like Relic Golem, which is the three mana 6-6 six, six that can't attack or block unless your opponent has eight cards in the graveyard and you can spend two and tap it to mill someone for two. The 1-4 rogue, uh, black two for a 1-4. You can tap another rogue to give it death touch when it damages your opponent, uh, mill them for three. Um, I think that card's pretty strong. It's not like a card I'm like super thrilled to first pick, but it is a powerful card. And it's a card that I, I'm, I'm willing to take early. I'm potentially willing to first pick it. And it does make me want to draft rogues in that it enables this mill thing. It is obviously a much stronger card if you have other rogues. But I'm fine playing that card in, like, I think it's very good in uh, bl white, black, cleric -y type stuff. It's totally serviceable in any black deck, really. It's just, like, a strong enough card and there are enough other rogues that you can get it to do its thing. That's that's just kind of the situation. There, there's not a lot of super strong pull here. Uh, so this is in a spot that's really remarkably similar to me to what I was saying about uh, blue-red last week, where for the most part you end up here because you're just drafting one of these colors, in my case at least probably blue, and then uh, black is the other color, or if you started black whatever reason. Blue is the other color that you kind of end up shifting into because it's open. And so that means that a lot of the same principles about how you draft any blue deck are going to apply here, where uh, it's the same sort of situation where if you start with a little mage's domination, 
then well mage's domination has this you know theoretical if you mill your opponent it's cheaper thing that i think some people view as a significant reason to draft rogues as i believe i've mentioned before i don't view it that way i think it's a nice perk if you're rogues but it's not i i think the card's so strong that it just doesn't really matter whether i get that or not but and it's also like the fact that it's bbb or i mean uuu to cast uh, the, the triple blue just means that you aren't casting it early enough that the discount really matters all that much unless your opponent has some really big creature in which case great but that's like not the typical case that i find for this card basically if you have that you're on kind of the blue control uh good spells card draw uh tezim royal mage to get back your good spells kind of path and that path can easily play with black just like you can play with anything else another way that you can end up here well obviously you could just start with one of the other early big blue cards like into the royal or field research maybe even a bubble snare out of a pretty weak pack or something and then just kind of take other generically good blue cards and uh, find yourself here and then just like end up there uh, alternatively maybe you first pick just like deadly alliance some other reasonably strong black card and then you know third pick you start seeing some of those strong blue commons and you just shift in and it's it's fine um it's it's a good deck to fall into rather than force because the feature slash bug with this deck like, the weird thing about this deck is that i don't want to say all the cards suck because they don't exactly I don't want to say none of the cards are any good, because there are good cards. But I don't feel like there are specific cards that are really high priorities for me. The way that, like, in red, I think it's super important if you're aggressive to get bug catchers. And in kicker, like in blue-green, uh, I think it's super important to get field research. And, like, there are a couple other cards that just really stand... Like in uh, black-white, you really want core celebrant. Um, in blue-black, I just don't feel that way. Um, I d don't specifically care about any particular common. And the reason for that, as I have gone into further uh, detailed study of this archetype, where I start like looking at what cards stand out to me and looking at kind of like what the natural curve is of cards that I like, what I realized is that basically there are a lot of two drops that I am happy to play and feel like are good in my deck, but none of them really stand out over any of the others. I'm talking like Expedition Skulker, which is the 2-2 for one and a B that gets Death Touch if you have another rogue, pretty good in this archetype. Malakir Blood Priest, if you are kind of like aggressive and an archetype that doesn't have a lot of clerics, it's a good way to just do things that you're interested in doing. Uh, Skyclave Squid, generally a pretty strong card. Uh, Stonework Pack Beast, Tizim Royal Mage. These are all two drops that I'm pretty happy to have in my deck. Uh, the, the, um, the Bat. The Bat, I want to talk about specifically a little bit because um, I, I have talked before about how I'm really into the Bat and um, this is the 1-1 Flying Lifelink with kicker such that it becomes a six mana three three flying lifelink and i've i'm starting to come around to the idea that that card is very good in 
white black and green black and not as exciting in red black and blue black i talked before about how it's not that exciting in red black because uh, you kind of need things that hit harder and you don't care as much about the life gain and it hurts a lot that it's not party in blue black i like it if you're trying to do kicker things uh, because it's a good way to pick up black kicker cards um, and it's you know good early good late and works well in that archetype but if you're not if you don't have a kicker sub theme in your blue black deck then um, you run into this problem where as i just said most of the cards that i'm excited about are two drops and so you find yourself in this spot where your cards are overall relatively low impact and we're going to talk a lot more about like what that means and like how it informs your draft but uh, because your cards overall are low impact and we'll I'll explain how that's true and what I mean by that uh, in a little bit um, you can end up in this spot if you have some gloom hunters where you need to play them early and now all of your stuff is just kind of trying to nickel and dime your opponent and uh, you can end up in a spot where they start playing high impact cards and then you need to like line up hard removal spells for all their like high impact stuff or they can have like a single four or five mana creature that just kind of invalidates and races all of your like random little garbage. So um, Ghastly Gloom Hunter, uh, the Flying Lifer Linker can kind of lead you further into a spot where you have this problem or maybe you're like leaning on waiting for it and playing it as a 3-3 Flying Life Linker, but that's pretty easy to kill and then you're kind of no better off. So I like it in green black where early it buys you time for your like more powerful stuff like green black generally has a lot bigger of a game than blue black like it very much doesn't have this all low impact problem it's all very high impact and in white black you have a lot of synergies uh with the gloom hunter just because it's giving you repeated life gain triggers again it's a strong enough card i'm fine playing a few of them in blue black rogues but it's um like kind of downgraded enough that it's just among all of these other two drops that I would be totally content to play. So that's, for those who may not have been counting at home, that's six different common playable two drops in this archetype, which is a ton, um, especially since they're all pretty comparable, which means you don't need to prioritize any of them. You're going to have enough two drops. The deck does want a lot of two drops, but like basically all the best creatures are these two drops so you just you're just gonna get there as far as things that don't cost two mana uh i like zulaport duelist which is the one one flash for one that gives something uh minus two power and mills player for two uh with flash when it enters the battlefield um that's a card that i didn't play basically at all for my first many drafts in this set and then i started playing with it more in aggressive blue decks and uh found that it played really well so I, I do like it a lot when you care about things that it's doing and when you're getting into a lot of combat and when you're attacking a lot it plays particularly well obviously with expedition skulker uh, and just generally anytime you can trade it for like a two drop and then mill them for two your three cards into filling your opponent's graveyard um, on a very cheap exchange that left you up a permanent so 
it's a it's a nice card. Obviously, it does it has the same issue as the Ghastly Gloom Hunter that I was talking about, and all these other cards where it's all very small ball. But it is a good small ball card. Then at three mana, I'm pretty into Nimana Sky Dancer, which is the I hate saying that I'm into Nimana Sky Dancer. Nimana Sky Dancer is the two two flying rogue with flash that uh, mills your opponent for two when it enters the battlefield. Two one flying flash um, for three mana. I can't believe that I'm, like, okay with a 2-1 Flash Flyer for 3. But it is doing things that this archetype wants to do, and so um, it, it, it works out well enough. But it's it's not a strong card. It's, it's just one that, like, fits the game plan. Then there's also, like, um, the 2-3... Uh, party thing that like is a rogue and that like that pumps for party um, whatever it's called seafloor stalker probably um, and like that's a serviceable rogue but it's not that exciting without party and like there are other there are like a variety of other three mana creatures that you can play uh, skyclave sentinel and stuff but none of them are anything special at common uh, at uncommon you're pretty happy about um relic golem and the one four uh, rogue that i mentioned at rare you might even get uh whatever the the uh nighthawk rogue guy with lots of power for your opponent's graveyard um and then uh at four mana there's like nimana skitter sneak i guess which is the uh rogue that's a three four and if your opponent has eight cards, it has plus one power and menace. So it's like pretty good if your rogue deck is very much set up to mill them. But again, it's like even if that's happening, it's just well, this is it's it's. I said pretty good. It can be, but it's still just like a four mana creature, and it's I don't I don't know, kind of just like medium. And then like at five mana, there's stuff like Living Tempest and the five four landfall indestructible black creature. And all, all of this stuff is just fine, right? Like, none of, the, none of the cards that I mentioned are, like, really exciting. I guess there's also, like, the wizard that's, like, the 3-2 flying wizard that draws a card if it dies if you have another wizard. But black doesn't give you any wizards, so it's, like, pretty hard to get wizard stuff going. So the point is, this archetype has really strong uncommon and rare creatures. And then the common creatures are all deeply replaceable like it's just very very hard to find a pick find a common creature that you're taking and you're not just like well this is replacement level or maybe just above replacement level um none of them are bad they're all serviceable you just have to understand that your deck isn't about these creatures in a way that's like both good and bad like it this sounds pretty negative right like there aren't any good cards but also it just means that like it works out like the creatures are functional and you'll get them and you don't really need to prioritize them which frees you up to prioritize the spells uh blue black is very much a deck that's based on its spells those are the like kind of high picks and your good cards there's a lot of good removal uh so i mean let's let me let me scale that back a little bit in black there's deadly alliance which is very strong, probably one of the top commons for the archetype. 
despite the fact that you might only have rogue, it's pretty easy to find some other creature type. Uh, make it cost three mana. Three mana, it's a pretty good deal. At four, it's fine. Uh, two, it's great. Um, but this will cost maybe like three, three and a half mana in terms of like what you really spend for it on average, which is a totally good removal spell. And then there's like Vanquish the Weak and um, the two mana one, <laughs> the sorcery that kills a creature or enchantment and makes you lose life. I think both of those cards are like fine serviceable. I'm not super excited about either one of them. I think it's this deck can easily get in a spot where the life loss matters a lot and um, uh, Vanquish the Weak is, I think, relevantly narrow. I'm, I'm not sad to put either of those cards in my deck, but they're kind of like the creatures to me. Uh, there's a lot of interaction available in this archetype, and those two cards feel kind of like replacement level interaction to me. Uh, Subtle Strike, I actually like a little bit more than I like those, which I think might be like a hot take or something that is like a little less common. But I do think that this archetype does really excel on um, just kind of getting in early and like doing these small ball exchanges and getting extra power on its flyers and kind of clocking the opponent that way and stuff. And so Subtle Strike plays well in that kind of game, but of course it also contributes to this, you know, larger problem that I've been talking about where maybe your stuff is too low impact and you can't, like, you end up getting overwhelmed. Blue, of course, also has a bunch of really good spells, good interaction in, like, Bubble Snare and um, Into the Royal and Glacial Grasp works well here. Uh, you care about, the, like, milling them and um, you care about, uh, like, the tempo play. And then the other kinds of cards, like the other group, so there's like the interactive spells and then there are the card advantage spells. Uh, both, both of those groups are important. You want some of each basically in any uh, kind of blue-black deck. And the card advantage commons are field research, uh, which is the draw two, kicker draw three, mind drain, which is your opponent discards two, loses a life, you gain a life, and you mill them. Um, which is very good at, like, it puts three cards in your opponent's graveyard, so it's very good at filling their graveyard to turn on your stuff, assuming they had cards in their hand. Um, and then Blood Beckoning, uh, which is the raise dead with kicker to raise two deads. And one of my favorite little things going on in blue-black is the combination of uh, Blood Beckoning and Tizim Royal Mage. I just always go for that, like the cute little, like, put some commons together to infinitely recur all my creatures, hypothetically, in theory, if my opponent will just cooperate and keep killing one, like, my creature that I need to bring back. I just, I can't get enough of that in basically any limited format. But um, in this kind of, like, in this deck and format in particular, I think that that's a good way to turn your, like, little grindy cards into... It's a thing that does something kind of big. It's not fast, it's not over the top, but it is, like, inevitable in a way that lets you compete with things that, like, basically it lets you compete with decks that have a higher curve than you. Um, and I mean, just in general, the fact that these things have kicker 
makes your curve function as if it's a little higher, which lets you compete with a higher curve a little bit more easily. But here, when you're combining like a six mana thing and a four mana thing and getting extra cards and potentially like getting back both extra creatures from the blood backening and maybe you get like another royal mage in here or something and you can start getting back deadly alliances you can just start kind of doing a lot of whatever you want eventually in a long game i it sounds crazy to talk like this is what actually happens in games of magic but trust me i do this kind of stuff it, it does happen a little bit when this is the way that you play um so anyway that's like certainly only one of many ways to approach like having a plan to win a late game, which is really like what I'm kind of getting at with this idea that your deck is going to be a bunch of like small ball stuff. And so you need like just deck building and magic in general is about having a narrative for your deck that like tells a story like we're going to do this and then this and I'm going to win because this happens. And I think that with rogues, there are a few different narratives you can tell. Like maybe your narrative is basically like, I'm gonna get in early, I'm gonna attack, I'm gonna play some tempo stuff, I'm gonna play evasive stuff, I'm gonna put you on the back foot and then play things to like keep you off balance until I can like win with flying things and menace things and Malakir blood priest drains or whatever. Or it can go a completely different way. Maybe your story is I'm gonna answer all your stuff and I have like a few different like mill engines and one of these things and I'm gonna deck you. like. I have maybe a crab or two, maybe I have maddening cacophony, maybe I have um, just a lot of like random creatures that mill you for two and then blood beckonings to bring them back and mill you again. Um, so you can like tell this, well, I'm just gonna like trade off until your library's gone story. Or um, maybe you have like a strong rare creature or two and you have like a lot of removal and card draw and you're gonna like find your like big rare finisher and you're gonna bring it back with blood beckoning uh, if your opponent kills it. Um, so there, there are just a lot of different ways that this deck can win, but you need to pay attention to like what your narrative is and how you're going to win. And so this blood beckoning to Zemo Mage thing is one thing that your narrative might be. Um, so, now to like step back and talk just a little bit more directly about this low curve, low impact thing and what it means for kind of like your pick orders and game plan and overall approach. So obviously you could say, well, I still want a smooth, normal, limited uh, curve. Um, and I know there are a lot of highly desirable two drops, so I'm just gonna de-emphasize all of those. I'm gonna prioritize picking the best things I can think of at every other spot on the curve, and I'm gonna end up with enough two drops because there'll just be enough picks where the only good card in the pack is a two drop and I take it. Um, I don't recommend that because I think the two drops legitimately are better than the other cards, and I would just rather lean into the idea that my deck has a lot of two drops. But if my deck has a lot of two drops, that means um, a few things. It might mean I'm like aggressive and trying to end the game, but these two drops aren't particularly great attackers. Uh, they're good for other reasons. And so that's, that's not really what I expect to have happen. What's really gonna happen is I have a lot of these cards that are cheap and trade up on mana. 
uh, Expedition Skulker and Skyclave Squid, for example, are both example are both cards that are very good at trading with things that cost three or four mana. And I can play these, and then uh, they stop me from falling behind, and now I can spend time playing Field Research and Mind Drain, or trading off these two drops and playing Blood Beckoning. And because all of my creatures are really cheap, and I can get these cheap exchanges, now I can afford to spend mana to get up cards, and then I can basically, my like core strategy is card advantage. Like, uh, I'm going to just like draw a lot of cards, and I'm not going to fall too far behind while I'm doing that, because my cards are cheap and I can deploy them easily, and maybe I can swarm someone, maybe I can, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can win by having more cards than your opponent, and... Um, it's easiest to do that when the more cards that you have than your opponent are cards on the battlefield rather than cards in your hand. And so the fact that your deck is full of these like uh, one, two, and three mana plays that trade with your opponent's cards makes it very easy to uh, like have a nice smooth game where you're drawing cards and putting them onto the battlefield and trading them off and they go to the graveyard and maybe putting them back. And your deck just has... A lot of, I'm going to say velocity, it's not a great term, it means a lot of different things, a lot of people use it to basically mean number of cantrips in your deck or something, but uh, I'm referring to just like your general ability to efficiently use mana to move cards between zones uh, in a way that's like somehow profitable for you. Um, so that is basically like my big picture story about blue black it's um so to, to summarize uh bring it all together basically the way that i'm thinking about blue black is um your uncommons are really important uh powerful rares would also be really important and these are important both because a lot of the commons are all very interchangeable and replaceable but also it's very easy to play long games or games where you're seeing a lot of cards which means that it's very likely that you'll draw any of your strong uncommons that you draft your deck around um and uh in general you're looking to uh play a very nickel and dimey small ball type game where you're uh, making trades where you end up plus a 1-1 one, one counter or plus a 1-1 one, one creature or plus two mana on, ex on an exchange. Um, just like getting these little edges, having some hard removal or big tempo plays for your opponent's big stuff, and then uh, closing the door either by milling your opponent out or uh, like killing them with damage or whatever. Um, so the deck is very much kind of about just like having the right mix of these common effects rather than having like a lot of your pre like premium commons or something. Um, and so that means that success is really based on identifying what your plan is going to be and drafting to make that happen and like building a cohesive deck out of these like interchangeable pieces that you will see in reasonable numbers basically no matter what rather than just kind of like hoping to spike a lot of the best cards that that's the way to put a positive spin on this archetype is there are a lot of serviceable cards that do relatively interchangeable things and there aren't single commons that you're really reliant on and so there's like 
a lot of flexibility here and um, you have a lot of control in the draft because uh, it's because it's not just like about certain cards that everyone else is taking and you just have to hope other people don't want them or a lot of them are opened or something. So um, that is the end of my uh, lecture on blue black. I um, it, it's as you may have picked up from the fact that uh, the cards that can go in blue black but can also go in a lot of other archetypes like the fact that I don't lean into blue black when I have those cards means that I'm less likely to draft blue black than a lot of the other things just in terms of if you think about like the number of cards I might first pick that lead me down any single path there are a lot of cards that uh, cause me to intentionally draft something other than blue black and then it's only when I'm in that undefined space that I might end up slotting into blue-black rogues, but I could just as easily slot into anything else. So this is an archetype that I don't have a ton of experience with. I think it's uh, f fine, not amazing. Um, I, I do like respect it a lot. Um, I, I would say that more of the times that I've seen it win, it's my opponent beating with me with it rather than me beating my opponent with it, just because my opponent's more likely to be playing it than I am. But um, so, you know, disclaimers about even though we're really, really, really deep into this format, I, I don't think I'm an expert at this archetype in terms of actual practice, which is why I can say, you know, the nature of the cards is such that this is what it's about and you need to find the right balance and everything, rather than saying just like, this is the right balance or this is, you know, I talked about there are these different paths you can go down. And if I were more familiar with the archetype, I might say, and this path is way more likely to win than this path. Um, but I, I would uh, advise just consider your own experiences in terms of assessing which path is most likely to be effective. I, I don't have that answer. So that will wrap up my lecture for this week. Uh, thank you everyone for watching, listening, engaging with this content on whatever platform you happen to be engaging with it on. And uh, for those of you who are watching live but might not always be able to catch me live, uh, you can find the uh, nice crisp edited version uh, either on YouTube if you like watching things or as a podcast on whatever podcast network or app or whatever you are into. And for those of you who are listening, uh, every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Central Time, I record this live. You can uh, come watch me flounder through it a little bit, uh, see the unedited take, and participate in the chat where you can um, ask questions following up that will, of course, be available in the uh, follow-up bonus episode where I answer questions. So uh, if you're not here live, tune in for that. And if you are here live, uh, let's get some questions in here. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone, and goodbye.